beloved, it's just so good to see all of you. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I'm going to have to take off my bracelet because it's already clinking on the table. And so let me do that. You know I've quit wearing earrings. I would like you to know that I like earrings, but because they always click on my microphone and I would not do anything that would distract you in any way or possibly give the enemy any entrance... I have tried to carefully choose my accessories, but don't you know my bracelet today was not cooperating one bit. So if you'll open God's Word with me today, we're going to be in John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're going to be looking in verses 1 through 27. So would you open the Word of God to John chapter 18. Now our study has brought us at this point to the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the trials that begin to set the stage for the cross. As you are a student of the scripture, you know that in a very short time, these events begin to unfold very, very rapidly and they are leading us up to the cross. And as I said in my prayer, beloved, whenever I come to these passages in the gospel about the arrest, the trials, the horrible treatment of our Lord, the crucifixion, it grieves my spirit and there's something in me that always wants to shrink back. And so I've been asking the Lord as I was studying and preparing that rather than shrinking back from these verses that speaks of such horrible cruelty done to Christ, that we would instead enter in with a spirit of gratitude for what he endured Though he despised the shame, the scripture says, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That is, that he might redeem one like me, one like you. And so today, as we go into these very dark verses about the arrest and the trials, or at least the first few trials of the Lord Jesus endured before he went to the cross, I'm just asking that you give your full attention to the word of God and that you ask the Lord to allow these words to deep to sink deep into your soul, to rest upon your soul today, that it might bring about a whole new spirit of gratitude. Look in chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so Jesus, verse 4, knowing all these things that were coming upon him, he went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there with them. And so when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Verse 7, therefore, again he asked them, well, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus answered and said, I told you that I am he. I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. 
the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Verse 12, so the Roman cohort and commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Oh, beloved, there are several things I want to point out to you. This was in our study. Dana had written the study and made this point that Jesus and his disciples now, they've left the upper room after this extended period of time. They've had the last supper, last supper and there's been lots of teaching and training and very intimate conversation between Jesus and the 11. Judas at this point had already gone out to betray the Lord. And the scripture says they begin now to go down into the Kidron Valley Valley. And Dana pointed out in our study that during Passover, it was estimated that over 200,000 lambs were sacrificed for Passover. And there was a trough cut from the altar down through the Kidron Valley that would take away the blood of the sacrifices and drain it away. And so as Jesus and his disciples are making their way through the ravine in the Kidron, they come to this stream, to this channel that has been cut, that is running red with the blood of countless lambs being sacrificed for Passover. The poignancy of this moment, beloved, as the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. The one and only atoning sacrifice for sin was about to lay down his life that we might be redeemed. We who have received him through repentance and faith might come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Can you imagine what it was like for the Lord as he stood there and saw that red blood that spoke of his shed blood, blood that would be shed in a very short time upon the cross that he might redeem humanity and that all those throughout the ages who with repentance and faith would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ would be gloriously saved. Can you imagine the moment? Not only that, he takes the disciples and he goes to what is called the garden. This is the garden of Gethsemane. He goes to the garden, again, that's so poignant because the whole purpose for Christ coming to the earth to die a sinless sacrifice for the sin of, of, of humanity, the whole reason behind it began in a garden back in Genesis 3. In a perfect environment, God created man and woman, put them there in the garden. But in Genesis 3, we read about how Adam and Eve gave away the estate of humanity, transgressed God's law, and sin entered in. And it was because of what was done in that garden that now the Lord Jesus has taken his disciples to this garden. Again, the poignancy of what is happening now as the disciples are moving now with the Lord through the Kindron Valley and on into the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 2 tells us that uh, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Judas, who was betraying him, knew this place for he often went there with his disciples. And that Judas now is leading a Roman cohort now, most Bible scholars believe that a Roman cohort would consist of about 600, maybe as many as 1,000 military soldiers. Some would have possibly been cavalry, while the others would have been foot soldiers. And they were highly trained, and they were uh, uh, with lots of weapons. It says they have lanterns and torches and weapons. 
and they are armed to the hilt to come to arrest a Jewish rabbi who's in the company of 11 of his disciples. Not only are the Roman soldiers there, but also officers and chief priests are there. The Sanhedrin had sent some of the temple police, and then certainly there would have been a collection of curiosity seekers who had joined in the throng as they made this procession down to the garden. Can you even imagine this growing crowd, this rabble that's coming to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 4 tells us he knew all things. Beloved, this did not take him by surprise. This was part of the plan that had been orchestrated and ordained before the foundation of the world. This kind of theology is beyond what any of us can uh, possibly unravel, but we rest in it that he knew all things. He was fully man, but he was fully God as well. And he says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And verse 5 tells us that he said to them, I am he. In my Bible, which is a New American Standard, the word he is in italics. That is, it's not there in the original language. In the original language, he simply said, I am. Beloved, that's a reference to the name that God gave himself back in Exodus. And the Jews and the crowd would have known that he was declaring himself to be God, a very God. He was saying, I am Jehovah. And they considered it such blasphemy and they hated him all the more for it. And then it goes on to say that when he spoke the words, the declaration of the name of God, that they drew back and fell to the ground. Now this is stunning to us as we read this. Perhaps a thousand people are simply slain by the word of God as it goes forth from his mouth. And I can't help but believe this is a reference, a precursor to what will happen at the battle of Armageddon that is discussed for us in the book of Revelation. They will be slain when the word of God is spoken forth. And these men fall. These are highly trained, well-seasoned men of war. And they fall as dead men before the word of the Lord. Now, you and I would have thought that this would have produced such fear that there would be a spirit of, of great uh, dread and fear and some would come surely to realize he was who he said he was and fall down in front of him in worship. But that's not what happened. It seems like the whole throng of them simply stood up and dusted themselves off and proceeded to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. So he asked them again, who are you looking for? And they, uh, uh, he said, uh, uh, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I told you, I'm the one, I am he. If you seek me, then let these go their way. And again, beloved, it's just such an obscure reference, but I don't believe it's any coincidence. I think this is speaking of the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ. He is saying, take me, not them. And beloved, on the cross, he became sin for us. He who knew no sin, the scripture says, became sin for us that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. He sacrificed himself on our behalf, beloved. Hebrews tells us that though he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, that is to redeem lost humanity, for that joy he endured the cross and now is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, it speaks of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. 
and Simon Peter, one of our very favorite Bible characters, a strong personality, a, a fervent man, a great follower of Christ, but one who at this point was still quite rough around the edges. He drew a sword. Now, this is probably a very small sword that he wore in his waistband. We don't know for certain. But at any rate, he's up against a thousand trained militia, perhaps a thousand. He pulls this little sword and he goes after the first man he can get his hands on, and that happens to be the unfortunate Malchus. He is a servant of the high priest, and it says that he struck him and he sliced off his right ear. Now, we have to assume that he intended to take off his head. But because he was a fisherman and not a swordsman, he only managed to get off his right ear. And it tells us in other gospels that Jesus healed the ear. This was not a physical fight. This was a spiritual battle. And Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in your sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Remember Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine. And then it says they arrested Jesus and they bound him. That's the arrest of the Lord Jesus. I want to talk to you now for just a moment about the trials as they began. There were six trials that happened. John does not chronicle every event that he witnessed in the life of Christ. His purpose for writing the gospel was to highlight the deity of Christ. He says in John chapter 20 that he wrote these things, he included these signs that we might believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ and that we might be everlastingly saved and received eternal life. And so he, he just uh, uh, does not include every little detail. You have to put all of the gospels together to get them all. But look with me, if you, if you will, in verse, uh, beginning in verse 12, and you will see the beginning of the first trial. And so the Roman cohort and commander and officers of the Jews, they arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led, led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Look down in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus said to them, I have spoken openly to the world, I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together, and I spoke nothing in secret. That is, I have not made any threat against Rome, been very public about my mission, very public in my ministry. Why do you question me, he said in verse 21. Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Oh, irony of ironies, for Christ is our high priest. And Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? And so Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. There were actually three phases 
of this trial. All of them were illegal. Charles Swindoll says, Jewish tradition carefully regulated the conduct of criminal trials even more so than civil cases. No trial was to be held in secret or at night, and the only proper place to hear criminal cases was in the hall of judgment in the temple. Furthermore, when evidence was heard, the accused could not be compelled to testify. In his own case, all charges had to be substantiated by multiple collaborating witnesses. And so from the very beginning, this was a mock trial. In the first phase, he was brought before Annas, who was no longer the high priest. He had been asked to step aside back in 15 AD by the Romans, who knew him to be a very powerful um, a leader. And his son-in-law was installed as high priest. Annas, and we can assume his son-in-law, Caiaphas, were very corrupt in their dealings in the temple. And so first of all, he goes before Annas, and then he goes before Caiaphas in the middle of the night, and some of the Sanhedrin gathered there. And then it doesn't tell us this in John, but there was an early morning before daybreak trial before uh, Caiaphas and some of the Sanhedrin. They were trying to at least make some effort to make this appear to be a legal trial, but it certainly was not. John reminded us back in verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. That's back in John 11 that he himself had said it will be better for one man to die than for all the Jews to be wiped out by the Roman uh, leadership. And so Caiaphas was intent on seeing the Lord Jesus Christ persecuted, prosecuted, and put to death. But it goes on to tell us later in the chapter that the, the Jews were not able to carry out capital punishment. That had to be done by Rome. While Rome allowed them quite a bit of self-government, they were not allowed to put a person to death. And so Caiaphas knew that they would have to manipulate the Romans in order to have Jesus Christ put to death, but that had long been his goal. Now, while that was going on, we see first the arrest, then the trials. While the trials are going on, we're going to look back and see Peter's denials. Peter's denials, look again back in verse 15, chapter 8, 15. While Jesus is before Annas, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. This disciple is not named. Most Bible scholars believe it was John. The men had all scattered when Jesus was arrested. You have to read the other Gospels to find out that fact, but they had all scattered. But Peter and another disciple have returned now. And now the disciple that was uh, unnamed was known to the high priest, and he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door, door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. I think those words must have slipped out of Peter's mouth before he even had given it much thought. And he denied knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the slaves, verse 18, and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now look in verse 25. Now Peter, Simon Peter, was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, 
you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. He denied it. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, you are, you are one of them. Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again and immediately the rooster crowed. Beloved Peter denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ three times. Just a short while ago, Peter had told the Lord Jesus, I will die for you. I will die with you. I will go with you all the way to the cross. I will, I will follow you even to death. And a very short time ago, he had been willing to take on perhaps a thousand armed militia in order to protect the Lord Jesus. And yet a little servant girl caused Peter to cower in fear and to deny Christ. Luke's account adds, Dana said this in our opening, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Beloved, in the account that we've looked at today, there are three disciples that are mentioned, and each one of them illustrate for us a spiritual condition. Let's think first of all about Judas. Judas was an unbeliever. Even though he had spent three and a half years in the intimate circle of the disciples, studying and learning from the Lord Jesus himself, even though he had been intimately acquainted with this hand-picked group of people, seen Jesus do miracles and heard his teaching and, and, and had basically conformed his uh, outer behavior to at least appear to be a Christ follower, but we know that his heart had never been surrendered, had never been yielded, and that Judas, though he was one of that inner circle, had never been genuinely redeemed. Judas represents those in a lost state. And beloved, we need to be reminded that the lost condition has a wide spectrum. At one end is the out and out reprobate, but at the other is the religious one, perhaps the church member, perhaps the faithful, appearing, appearing to be seemingly faithful, follower of Christ, who is regularly serving and even giving to the cause of Christ, but whose heart has never been changed. That person is just as lost, you understand, as the out-and-out out heathen. And it says here in chapter 18 and verse 5 that Judas, who was betraying him, he was standing with them. In other words, he has left standing in the kingdom of light near the Lord Jesus Christ, not converted, but standing near him. And now he has moved himself fully into the kingdom of darkness. It only reveals that his heart had never been 
changed. There had never been a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would urge you today that you would examine your own heart to see if you're in the faith or not. For it is possible to conform outward appearance, outward behavior to rules and regulations and rituals and yet never be genuinely converted. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Beloved, has there ever been a time that you have turned to the Lord in repentance and faith? Has there ever been a time you have received him? Has there ever been a time you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received eternal life in him? Judas may have for a season appeared to be a follower of Christ, but he never was. He was an unbeliever and he stood with those, some extremely religious people who were enemies of the cross. The second one we see is Peter. And Peter, we know, was a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And yet, in a moment of weakness, perhaps believing he was stronger than he was spiritually, he denied Christ. So Peter represents for us the carnal Christian, the person who is genuinely converted but whose life does not reflect it. Now, beloved, Peter was a young man in the faith considerably, but he was a believer and by this time should have shown some real spiritual maturity. And yet he did not because he still was earthly minded. He was fleshly minded. And because of that, his behavior revealed the flesh. Romans 8, 5, and 6 speaks of those who have set their minds on the flesh rather than the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Paul rebuked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, calling them men of the flesh, infants in Christ, walking like mere men. Now, he's not talking about baby Christians. If you are brand new in the faith, you are a baby Christian, and your behavior will show up your infancy in Christ. But it is to be a temporary process, beloved, a stage you walk through as you mature in the saving knowledge of Christ, as you grow and grace and knowledge. Beloved, there is within our culture this kind of cavalier attitude towards grace. It's really an abuse of grace. There are many in the faith who would say, I am saved, I am covered by the blood, grace covers me, therefore I can live any way I want to. Well, may I tell you, you can't get that out of the scripture. The scripture teaches that while there is a season to be a baby Christian. Paul said, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I acted like a child. But then the, the day came, and I put away childish things, and I stepped into being a man for Christ. If you're a baby Christian, there's a season for that, but it is to be short-lived, and you are to be sanctified progressively 
moving more and more and more into the likeness of Christ in personal holiness and practical righteousness so that your life, your behavior begins to line up with who you are in Christ. Your behavior, practically speaking, begins to reflect your position in Christ. And yes, this is a process. And yes, this is slow. And yes, this is painful. It should be evident that you are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And to simply say, I'm covered by grace, and shrug your shoulders and say, so I can live any way I want to, shows a misunderstanding and a misapplication of grace. Dr. Rogers, our former pastor, used to say something like this that people often said to him, well, if I bought into your theology, I'd get saved, and then I'd sin all I wanted to. And Dr. Rogers said, really? I do sin all I want to. In fact, I sin more than I want to because the truth of the matter is I don't want to. It is a progressive sanctification where we move through babyhood and we move towards being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Our oldest son's name is Jason. And when Jason was first married, he married Patty. We discovered there was another Jason Stockdale here in Cordova. And Jason Stockdale, that Jason, and my Jason had lives that really paralleled with each other. The way we discovered it is that Jason and my Jason got married a month apart and were booked in the same place for their honeymoon. And so there were lots of, you can imagine, the confusion that had to be sorted out from time to time. Now, the guys did not know each other, but that Jason was in the praise and worship band at his church and played the guitar. My Jason was in the praise and worship band in his church and played the guitar. And so there was all of these overlaps. I would go and use my credit card someplace or write a check, and they would say, oh, your last name's Stockdale. Are you related to Jason Stockdale? And time and time again, I would say yes and launch into this story only to discover it was the other Jason Stockdale. And this went on many, many, many months, many, many incidents where we never met, but we knew there was another Jason Stockdale. We connected on Facebook, and the other Jason said, every time I go anywhere, they'll, and I say my name is Jason Stockdale, they'll say, oh, is Jean Stockdale your mother? And so we were laughing about the relationship that had developed through both boys being named Jason Stockdale. Well, some months later, I was at a wedding, and someone who knew me came and got me and said, the other Jason Stockdale is here, and he wants to meet you. Well, I could not wait to meet this young man. And so as we uh, met together, we shared stories about all these cross-connects and the funny ways that uh, we had been uh, misunderstood and, and uh, um, identified as uh, related to each other, and um, he told me a little bit of his testimony, had a strong, strong testimony, a great man of faith, had gotten married uh, the same time my son, a month after my son, and was leading his family well, and I was just rejoicing. He was serving in his church, and I was just listening with such gratitude in my heart, but as we prepared to part to him, I leaned in real close, and I said, Jason, it's been awfully nice to meet you, and I'm so thrilled that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. What a testimony you have, but I got in real close. And I said, Jason, if you ever decide to wander from the faith, you need to know I'm coming after you. <laughs> you see, you share the name of my son. 
Oh, beloved, when you and I identified ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, when we claimed him as Lord and Savior, don't you understand that while it was a free gift, it came with such great responsibility? Not that we would simply shrug and say, oh, great, now I can live any way I want to and I'm still secure in heaven. No, but that we might understand that now in Christ, We are free not to live any way we want to, but to live the way we ought. Oh, there should be such brokenness in our hearts and lives over sin. And that's what we see with Peter, a carnal Christian. Judas, the unbeliever. Peter, the carnal Christian. And finally, the unnamed disciple. This was most likely John. But we see him in chapter 18 determined to stay close to Jesus Christ, no matter what the outcome. Oh, beloved, I ask you today to examine your own heart. We see from this passage one who was lost, one who was a carnal believer, and one who was a committed Christian. And I ask you, what category is it that you fit into? If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ today, I would urge you to consider the claims of Christ to pray and ask Christ to come into your heart and life, forgive you of your sin, and take him as your Lord and Savior. If you are listening today and you know that you know that you belong to him, but you have allowed sin to infect your life and to cause you to walk not according to the truth, but contrary to it, then it is my earnest desire that today you would get before the Lord and get that settled once and for all. And if you are here today and you've already made this commitment for Christ and you are walking in his ways, God bless you. May God continue to bless you and keep you. Let's pray. Father God, how grateful we are for your word today. Oh, while it is weighty and heavy as we read about the arrest, the abuse, the trials, we read about the hours leading up to the cross. Father, our hearts, while broken for what you endured, are filled with gratitude and joy. The tomb is empty. You have ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, and you ever live to make intercession for us. You have sent your blessed Holy Spirit to indwell your believers, and now in Christ, the Spirit of God lives within us and the Word of God speaks to us. Oh, Father, I pray, I pray you would take the words of your truth, that they would resonate in our soul, and as we go throughout the week, we would be ever mindful of the great price that was paid on Calvary to redeem us from our sin, and that, Father, it would prompt holy living. We are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, And we are determined as your daughters to link arms and to run well and finish strong. Until that day when we see you face to face. May we have the mind of Christ. May we be surrendered to the Spirit of God. May we be students of the Word of God. May we bring honor and glory to the name of the Father. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you.